On today's morning show, we're going to be exploring the incredibly important and painful topic of domestic abuse. And we're going to be doing so through the eyes of a woman named Beverly Gooden. She is also known as essentially the creator of an extraordinary viral social media phenomenon, hashtag why I stayed. This occurred back in 2014, several years after Beverly Gooden had left uh, her marriage and left the man who was abusing her in all kinds of different ways. In the fall of 2014, video was released which showed Baltimore Ravens running back Ray Rice punching and ultimately rendering unconscious his then fiance. All kinds of horror was ex expressed about that image, but also then some blowback in terms of questions being asked and sometimes very insensitively asked about why this woman was choosing to stay with Ray Rice. Beverly Gooden was so troubled by the tenor of some of those questions that she posted on Twitter the hashtag, why I stayed, and went on to explain at least uh, in summary fashion why she had chosen, at least for a time, to stay with her abusive husband. What that simple posting on Twitter did was unleash a torrent of similar stories. Uh, ultimately, more than 200,000 uh, people posted similar stories about why they had or were choosing to remain in abusive relationships. It ultimately advanced our collective discussion about the nature of domestic abuse, domestic violence, and why it is that some people seemingly choose to remain in such relationships. Beverly Gooden has now returned to this important topic in a new book she has written called Surviving. And I think the subtitle of the book really spells it out beautifully. Surviving, why we stay and how we leave abusive relationships. In this book, Beverly Gooden outlines the relationship that she had with uh, a handsome, charismatic man whom she refers to in the book only as H. The nature of their relationship, how loving their relationship was in the early going, and then how bit by bit uh, it turned into a much darker place. And she says that this is often the way in which abuse plays out, that often it is not something that begins in dramatic fashion, but little by little, bit by bit. And we often experience a gradual realization of the nature of the relationship in which we find ourselves, gradual in the same way that we learn about any other topic with which uh, we were uh, unfamiliar. And ultimately, in her book, Beverly Gooden spells out not only some of these complicated emotional issues, but also spells out many of the practical matters that must be considered, uh, particularly when a woman is choosing to leave an abusive relationship. And in particular, uh, some of the really harsh realities involving, for instance, finances and where to live and how to build a, a new life apart from one's abuser. It's a very, very important book, again titled Surviving, Why We Stay and How We Leave Abusive Relationships 
published by Roman and Littlefield. I wonder if you could talk, first of all, about what it was like for you to write the memoir portion of this book in which you, in a sense, I'm sure, had to relive the experience of yeah. meeting the man you married uh, and, uh, and then uh, from whom you endured uh, escalating uh, domestic abuse. What was it like to have to turn back to that chapter of your life and, in a sense, re-experience it? You know, I think a lot about how moving on for many people means forgetting, you know, and I think that I was a part of that, you know, I thought I lived this, I survived it, and I've moved on, and I've forgotten, you know, about it, and, and discovered really quickly that I hadn't forgotten about it, that it was still kind of there under the surface, and so when I decided to write this book, I knew that I was going to have to remember, you know, um, the way that I think of remembering, I, I consider it to be a process where you reassemble things from your past, and so I had to, you know, reassemble places and times and really difficult moments that were painful, and so in writing this memoir, it was really hard to reassemble those things, um, those things that I had put behind, but I knew that it was important. I knew that well, the whole entire reason I wanted to write this book is because when I initially started to write a book, I titled it Unstuck. And so my goal was to write about, quote-unquote, toxic relationships. You know, I'm not necessarily calling them domestic violence, but, you know, saying this is something you may want to get out of. And I, and I noticed that, you know, domestic violence isn't something that many people like to talk about. And I felt that in not naming it, I was contributing to that. I was part of the problem. And so then I explicitly started to write about domestic violence um, surviving it, how you get through it, how you leave it, and what happens after in regards to my story. So it was hard, but I knew it was necessary if I wanted to write a full and complete picture of what surviving domestic violence was like. I want to ask you about one intriguing line in the introduction to the book when you say to the reader, I don't want you to see me as strong. And, of course, that flies in the face of the fact that most readers probably will be inclined to see you as a very strong and courageous person uh, in terms of what you, yeah. you managed to do in extricating yourself from this situation. Why did you write those words? What did you mean by, I don't want you, meaning the reader, to see me as yeah. strong? I think a lot of times when we hear or see or experience stories of abuse particularly, we look at the person who has survived it and we're like, wow, you're so strong. You know, that's so great. That's, you know, that, that your strength, you know, is really valuable. And I think that sort of betrays how much it takes to survive. Sure, I'm strong. Like, I think that is definitely a part of who I am. But in those moments, I was so vulnerable. You know, I was in such pain. I felt weak. I didn't have food when I left or a place to live. You know, so strength may have gotten me through it, but I think if we just kind of notice the strength and don't notice the vulnerability, it'll be more difficult for us to help others when we see them in those situations. Mm -hmm. We're just like, you know, they're strong, they'll make it out, it'll be okay, and maybe it will be okay, but we also need care and tenderness and gentleness. We need someone 
to walk us through the next steps and to give us, you know, attention and kindness and acknowledge that what we're going through or what we've been through was life-changing and traumatic. I think we need to recognize all of those things because the strength is on the is on the other side of it, right? You come out and you're you're strong and you're stronger. But everything leading up to that was so much pain. And I think calling that out and recognizing that in other people might even cause us to have more empathy for it. Mm. You know, if we're just seeing it as strong, it's just like, you know, that's strength. You know, it's fine. It's strong. It's, you know, I'm so proud of the strength, but, you know, what about everything else? I need, to, I need you to be proud in my weak moments, you know? Right. You describe, I think, so vividly this man whom we only know as H, the letter H, uh, but the man whom you met, uh, a, a handsome man, uh, a talented musician, uh, actually a church musician. And as a mm-hmm. church musician, I have to say, I my skin ah. kind of crawled to think that uh, there was somebody uh, in the in the in the church and 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 making mm-hmm. music in the church who uh, who who could yeah. be this kind of person. But you describe how. Uh, part of the situation was that he did not lead with brutality but uh, but mm-hmm. that he was a very romantic figure that your relationship included a lot of rose petals and love songs and so on uh, in fact you write yeah. at one point he was the perfect amount of affectionate and firm like a skilled massage therapist building up a satisfying experience of pressure and ease. And I think as you're describing this, you're describing this at a point in your relationship when some of this abuse in various forms was beginning to emerge. Just talk a little bit more about that intriguing dynamic that was a part of your husband and a part of your relationship. Yeah, it was so intentional. You know, in the end, I know it was intentional, but he was... Oh, he was, he was such a, he was a great guy, you know, he was a great guy. He was, I remember he would pick me up from work sometimes and we would go down to the beach. We lived in Virginia Beach and we would go to the beach and we'd just sit there and, you know, he would write music (laughs) on the beach. You know, how do you not fall in love with somebody like that? You know, Mm -hmm. it's just he was so tender and and he was a very skilled musician he he was a music major who went on to also do um audio engineering and so like music was was who he was and so he shared that um he was very protective and that protection turned into control and i didn't notice it at first and so when i write about him being kind of like a skilled massage therapist it was just like you know he knew how to um kind of kind of grab you emotionally in control and just kind of um, not anger not even anger but just really firmness like i want you to do this or i want you to wear this because i think you look good in it or i don't want you to go to this place because it could be dangerous or those people don't seem right for you so you should stay away and he could combine that with you know you're so beautiful you are i'm writing this love song about you and you know everything you do is amazing and like it was just this it was just this it was just this dance like this this really beautiful but confusing dance where ultimately i didn't know you know what was good and what was not good and i think that's part of it you know um 
convincing me that, you know, all of it is necessary for a healthy relationship with him, but then me individually not really knowing, you know, does he not want me to wear this because he doesn't like it? Or do I not look good in it? Or, you know, should I not see my, are my friends really out to get me? And he's the only one that is able to protect me. Should I run to the arms of my protector? Or should I, you know, maintain the relationships with my loved ones? I don't know. Like, it was just this really, this really interesting dance. And all of it led to, you know, me choosing him over everything else. Mm. You know, choosing to move across the country with him because he was my safe place. You know, but then also being afraid of him because the violence was starting to begin. But also not knowing where to go because I don't have those friends that I used to have that are now gone because he didn't like them. So it's really complicated in a way that I don't know that I, I ever understood until I was in it. Right. And as you write, I think so well, an abuser carefully peels away the layers of confidence you have in your own ability and your perception of reality. You write something else that I think also helps us understand why sometimes it can be very difficult to emotionally kind of extricate oneself from a relationship like this, even when there is abuse uh, in, in place. You write at one point, we were both seeking control of the relationship. My husband mm-hmm. used fear. I used the ability to read the signs and modify my behavior accordingly. In a sick way, I took some satisfaction in knowing Mm -hmm. that I had the power to manage my husband's emotions. It was a kind of a thrill. Uh, And then I realized eventually that it wasn't true, that I got this. In fact, I wasn't in control. It's so interesting to think about the allure of that and how there would be something again and you use the word twisted but in a twisted sort of way it would almost be exciting as though you're in the middle of some kind of a movie in which you are navigating this perilous path uh except it's not a movie it's real life and it's happening to you except it's not a movie oh my goodness i i think that that passage that you pulled out is really it's perfect in that I can't speak for other survivors, but I know there are similarities between me and others. But I found pride. I found pride in being able to figure out when he was going to be mad and, you know, fix it ahead of time. Oh, it was like, it was just, I got excited when I could figure that out. And I didn't always, you know, sometimes I thought I, I thought I had him. I thought I was in control. I thought I knew how to prevent his anger and then, you know, um, he would still get angry. But those moments when I did have it figured out, when I would, you know, do things exactly the way he wanted them done or anticipate his needs in a way that would, you know, kind of quell his anger, I felt powerful, you know, but it was a fake power. It wasn't a real power. You know, I felt in control, but he had he was always in control. So what I didn't realize is that in a way he was allowing me to think, <laughs> You know that I had power in those moments, that I had control in those moments, because at any time he could he could become violent. That was his choice that he was making, and that's what I didn't realize. I didn't realize I was caught, you know, in this in this kind of twisted game. You mm. know that, you know, he was deciding when he was going to be abusive and when he wasn't going to be abusive, and that those moments where I felt powerful were intentional. 
he wanted me to feel like I had a little bit of power because he knew that if I felt a little bit of powerful, I wouldn't know that it was intentional. Mm. And he was right. I didn't know it was intentional. I thought I was winning. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That reminds me of another passage in the book. Uh, And again, this is how your husband was so smart in a sense in in the way that he abused because uh, you write at one point, I don't think he wanted me to break. He only mm-hmm. uh, wanted to me to have enough broken parts for him uh, to to play fixer, uh, to yeah. be the perfect mechanic, constantly refurbishing my heart, replacing the parts he'd shattered with new parts that he'd designed until there was nothing left of the original me. In other words, if the abuse had been uh, too severe, too sort of total in its ferocity, uh, it would have perhaps broken you completely. And instead, he was intentionally abusing you, just breaking you a bit at a time and then there to fix it. And you tell us that one of the things that held you back a little bit from wanting to just exit this relationship when the abuse became uh, even more serious was something that uh, calls to to the world of finances and business, something called the sunk costs fallacy, the idea that you have already invested time and energy and emotional uh, energy uh, into this relationship. And and it makes one reluctant to let it go and to say, this was a mistake. I'm leaving. I didn't want to. I didn't want to. I think because of how... how into it I was you know I was way far into it we had been together for for so long we had so many secrets between us you know secrets that I felt eventually would make us stronger when we figured out the the proper rhythm you know when we figured out how to you know make the violent part stop and I felt like I'd invested so much of my heart and my time and my mental energy, you know, that, that, that energy trying to figure out how to regain control. I'd invested so much of that that I didn't want to let it go, and I didn't want to do that again with anyone else. And so I'm just like, well, you know, I, I put all this time and emotional energy into it. I'm just going to stay. I'm just going to stay and just see it through, and it'll get better <laughs> one day. And you know, I think that sunk cost fallacy uh, this can be so broadly applied because we do that in all areas of life, right? Even, you know, when it comes to, it's so funny, the other day I, I bought some, I bought some um, leafy vegetables. I love leafy vegetables. And they were in the refrigerator and groceries are high. And I spent money and I used a part of it. I didn't use all of it, but it was still in there. And I was like, okay, I can, you know, I can come back to this. I can come back. I'm not going to throw it away. Clearly, I need to throw it away. I'm not going to throw it away. I'm just going to keep it there because, you know, I put all this money into it and groceries are high. And, but like it was over. It was over. Eventually, it started to stink up my refrigerator. And I should have thrown it away a long time ago, but I was just too caught up in the fact of what I'd invested into it and how much it had cost me. And I think about that in relation to my ex-husband. I invested so much. I moved across the country to be with him. I left grad school to be with him. You know, I, I left friends to go and be with him. How do you walk away from that? And I think, you know, sometimes people see 
abusive relationships or hear about abusive relationships, and the idea is that it's just so easy to get away. You just get up and go. And the reality is that, you know, sure, you know, there are finances involved. Yes, there are economic reasons, and sometimes there's love involved. But sometimes it's just purely, I don't want to go because I put my all into this. Hmm. And I want to see it through. Well, and you, know, you sometimes and, it's not even. Yeah, and you say at one point, uh, you were the ultimate for better for worse woman, and uh, yeah, and I you and you also believed in this thing called unconditional love, and I really appreciate mm-hmm. the fact that you take some time in your book to explore that, and in a sense to explore the terrible trap that that can yeah. be if one feels like. Uh, the the best thing that you can do is to feel unconditional love for someone. And as long as you were feeling or trying to feel unconditional love for your husband, that in a sense gave him permission uh, to abuse you. To continue. How would you you advise somebody who finds themselves caught in a similar trap to think about this thing called unconditional love? Is that something to completely discard and and if so, what do we replace it with? I think that that's an interesting question. For the first part of the question, I think that it's important to know that love should have conditions, particularly romantic love. It took me a long time to realize that boundaries are healthy and, and not in just kind of like a general boundaries are healthy way, but boundaries allow a relationship to continue. If you're implementing a boundary, you're saying, I want to be in a relationship with you, but I want to be in a relationship with you that is healthy according to, you know, my own needs and hopefully healthy according to your needs. So yes, give me boundaries back. You know, let's talk about what the bounds are. And so, you know, back when I was married to him, I really did believe that love was unconditional, that love could conquer all, that you just you know, you go through it and you just continue to love and love is all you need, right? Now I feel differently. I feel that love should have some condition. For me, a condition of love is safety. If I'm unsafe with you, then that's the end. If there's violence, then that's the end. You know, there should be there should be conditions. And so if anyone you know, is in a situation where they are like, Well, love is unconditional and you just stick through it, come what may that's not that's not healthy. That's not um, something that's necessary. And I think that stems a lot from I grew up very religious. Um, I write about this a little bit, but I was just kind of steeped in in like an evangelical uh, religious world where sacrifice was everything and unconditional love was everything, and you don't get divorced and like those types of 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 ideologies. And so. You know, I know a lot of people are there. You know, a lot of people believe that, and that doesn't have to be forgiveness. You know, nonstop forgiveness without a second thought of behavioral change or even an apology is unnecessary. You know, there are just so many things that I I used to believe that I don't anymore, but particularly that love should be unconditional. I think if the power dynamic is equal, you know, um, that's healthy. Hmm. And and if you know you know a, a love of a child that is you know doesn't grow up to abuse you, you know if if you grow up and you know, your child is abusive towards you or something like that, that's not healthy. You know, so love doesn't have to have conditions. Love has the conditions that you set according to what you believe is healthy for you, hmm. and that's okay. Hmm. That's okay. You chronicle in your book. I mean, sort of the last straw, which ultimately 
causes you, compels you to want to leave your husband and you tell us in, in clear and, and really interesting detail about what you did, how you formulated a safety plan and an escape mm-hmm. bag and kind of talk about yeah, what you went in yeah. there and so on. One thing that's really interesting as you describe then finally this day when you ultimately do leave is one of the choices you made was to leave your keys on the counter. Yes. Explain mm-hmm. why you wanted, why you thought it was important to leave your keys on the counter mm-hmm. as you exited your home. Yeah, that day um, was an unexpected day for I did for me. I didn't know that I was going to leave that day. I had prepared along the way for that day. I just didn't know it was going to be that day. And that day was actually really peaceful in our home. You know, we were in the we were in that that stage of the dance, right? Like there was no violence happening. And so, I won't tell the whole story, but I decided when I was walking out the door that I had to leave my key because if I didn't leave my key, I would go back inside. And so I wanted the decision to be final, and I didn't trust myself. You know, I didn't trust my own resolve. Um, And so I left the key on purpose because I knew once I locked myself out, I would not be able to get back in unless I called him to let me back in. And so in thinking through that decision, I had to um, really betray my own desires, you know, which my desire would have been to go home. Along the way, I, I one thing that I say now that is probably difficult for people to hear is that I wanted to go home a lot after I left. I didn't leave and feel triumphant. I didn't leave and feel happy. You know, I wanted to go home. I wanted to go back to my husband. I wanted to go back to our place and our dog. You know, I missed all those things. And so, but the reason I left the key is because I knew that I would change my mind if given the opportunity. Hmm. And that's hard. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to do something that you don't want to do that you know that you, that you need to do for your own safety. And, um, I left that key and I locked the door and I closed it. You chronicle, of course, from there, uh, your journey towards a a new life and a new chapter. And ultimately, of course, in 2014, uh, you create this hashtag, Why I Stayed, in the wake of some of the controversy that erupted over the NFL player uh, Ray Rice and uh, the video that captured him punching his then fiance and and some of the blowback from people who wondered, well, why in the world does she stay in this relationship? And uh, so you posted this hashtag, why I stayed. And of course, that unleashed thousands and thousands and thousands of similar stories uh, about why people stay in these uh, relationship. What do you think has ultimately been learned from this uh, from this device of allowing people to mm-hmm. tell their stories. What have we learned from that? Where are we now compared to where we were before? So 2014, I feel, was such a different time in the world of, you know, hashtags and activism. Back then, we didn't have, you know, the, the more popular hashtags that we have now. And back then, I, I could also say domestic violence isn't something that trended often. And or, or really at all. So when that happened, it was it was definitely unexpected. But I think it demonstrated 
that if you allow survivors the blessing of hearing their own voice and the gift of telling their own stories, you can get really a sustained conversation that brings a wealth of information that wasn't there before. And by that I mean, for instance, when I think about the hashtag, I always think about um, a person who tweeted that they stayed with their abuser because their abuser had employer-sponsored health insurance and they had a chronic health condition. And if they left their abuser, they would have to pay, sign for, and pay for their insurance all on their own. And they didn't know how much that would cost with their chronic health condition. That is not something I ever thought of. You know, that's not something that ever crossed my mind. And I learned that that day from that survivor sharing her story of abuse. And so there's so many different stories of abuse when it comes to storytelling. Um, it, it feels endless in a way that, like, you know, there's a new fiction book, you know, almost every day. Um, and it's, uh, there's so many stories to tell. And so imagine if those stories are, you know, not fiction, if they're impactful to someone's life. There was one Why I Stayed tweet that said, Why I Stayed Because My Word Was the Only Evidence. And I mm. think about that all the time. I think about the fact that many people are not leaving these relationships because the violence is not physical. Maybe it's verbal or emotional or psychological, and they don't have any evidence to show you, to prove, you know, everyone wants proof these days, to prove, like, here, I was abused. But her telling that story that day, you know, opened up a conversation about why do we need evidence of abuse? You know, why isn't um, the story enough, you know. I think that when it comes to storytelling, we've seen, you know, a lot more hashtags since that time with um, the, the Me Too hashtag, the version of it in 2017. Um, uh, as we know, like the movement was started by Toronto Burke many, many years ago, and then the 2017 hashtag, a lot of people were sharing their stories of sexual violence. And so I think, you know, storytelling is one of those um, tools that we can use that is not academic necessarily, and it's also not reported, you know. It's something that um, it, it is really birthed from someone's experience, and they're just telling it first person. And I think that can be so powerful when it comes to um, social issues such as domestic violence, especially considering domestic violence often happens secretly and quietly, and you don't necessarily know who's experiencing it or when. I think about how, you know, the statistics now are that one in four women, one in seven men, and there is not a lot of data on non-binary or genderqueer domestic violence, but we know that it happens in LGBTQ plus relationships. Knowing that alone, though, that, that binary stat, it's, it's impossible you know, it's statistically impossible for all of us not to know someone who has or will or is experiencing domestic violence. And with that in mind, how do we not want to hear the stories of people who have been through it or who are living through it? Because those are the stories that will inform us how we need to do activism or how we need to do lawmaking. You know, how, what do we need to do to make you know, um, health insurance way more affordable than it is. I know we have the Affordable Care Act, but that didn't necessarily end in it being affordable for all. 
you know, it's affordable if you can pay for it. You know, how do we make sure that there is no one who falls through the cracks? You know, how do we make sure, you know, that um, we work to, I don't know, fill these needs that are told in the stories? That begins through storytelling, because if we don't know the stories, we don't know um, where to go from here. You yourself actually uh, tell us that that if there has been a criticism of this whole notion of the hashtag why I stayed movement, so to speak, uh, mm-hmm. in your words, you say it, it, in a sense, it asks survivors to explain themselves when they should not yeah. be expected to have to do that. And, and you tell us that you, you understand that criticism. I mean, you understand the place from which that comes and it's, you know, perhaps yeah. a legitimate criticism, but nevertheless, so, yeah. you've, You've come to terms with that, and uh, and I appreciate that you're open about that in your book. Mm, thank you. Yeah, I think it's a legitimate criticism. I think that I saw it early when the hashtag started. Um, you know, people were pushing back against it. By people, I mean, like, activists in the gender violence space, you know, were pushing back against it and saying, you know, no, you don't have to tell your story. You don't have to say anything. Um, that's not your... Play. I mean, it's not your position. You don't have to frame it as, you know, explaining yourself. And I agree, actually. I, I, I receive that criticism. You know, I think that that's a valid criticism. I also think that um, if someone wants to tell their story, we shouldn't tell them not to. You know, I think that, you know, storytelling can be really fraught on the Internet. <laughs> you know, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know who's going to see it. There are always, you know, internet trolls who push back or fight or, you know, cuss you out or say terrible things about you. So it's not necessarily a friendly place for storytelling in terms of domestic violence. But I also know that the hashtag started um, when I just simply tweeted those words. You know, I didn't ask anyone to to tweet their stories. There wasn't a call to action there wasn't a call for sharing. I I really would never have done that, Greg. I am I um I I am always scared for people. You know, I'm scared for people who tell their their stories on the internet, on on social media specifically, because you never know what that will bring to you. Um, you never know if your abuser is watching. You know, you don't know. And so I I I know that it started because I was just tweeting, not because I was asking to start a movement or I was asking to go viral. And so that gives me some peace when it comes to that criticism. But I also know that, you know, being asked to or expected to explain yourself um, is unnecessary. Mm-hmm. I, I think there is a lot of value in asking the question, why, why would you stay? So long as it's done in good faith, mm. and it's not targeted. Right you know? from a from a I place of compassion, when asked yes. with from a place I, of I, compassion. Yeah, and I think that the, I think there is a genuine curiosity there. I'm not someone who believes, you know, if you're asking a question like that, you are being a jerk. I don't think so. I think I mean I think in some cases yes, <laughs> but I think there are some people like me. It's just to be um, really vulnerable and transparent in the moment. Before I experienced domestic violence, I wondered that, mm-hmm. you know? So I'm indicted as well. You know, I didn't know why anyone would stay with someone who particularly hit them. Why would you do that? You know, and so I knew that I, 
thinking back to, to the me back then, I wasn't acting in bad faith. I didn't ask anyone, but had I asked anyone, I would have genuinely wanted to understand what would compel, you know, um, a victim to stay with their abuser. Now mm. I know because right. I lived it, but I don't want people to have to live it to know. So mm. I think there's value in, you know, asking the question in good faith and and not expecting an answer from a survivor, but, you know, seeking answers from people like me who are happy to answer it or from advocates or domestic violence agencies who have a lot of that research on their websites to answer mm. those questions. I think the questions are important. They move us forward. But, you know, we always have to be, you know, genuinely curious and not asking, you know, to target someone or to be hateful. I think one way in which our understanding advances uh, in a conversation like this and in asking the question, you know, uh, why, I, why did you stay, uh, is that it, it also helps some people confront something which you call optimism bias. That is mm. when someone who themselves have not experienced domestic right. abuse are absolutely convinced, are absolutely certain that they that is something that could never happen to them, that never in a million years, right. if, we're, if they were never. with a spouse that was abusing them, would they stay? That is an absolute impossibility. And I can just hear all kinds of people saying that and believing <laughs> that. And, and these conversations maybe shake us from those kind of pat assumptions that domestic abuse is something that other people experience who are weaker than us or not as bright as us or not as courageous as us. Um, and, yeah. and that's just, that's a very simplistic way of looking at what actually can be a very complicated, difficult situation. It's so interesting because optimism bias, some people call it, um, uh, what do they call it? Unrealistic optimism or the illusion of invulnerability. Right. And so I think it's something that, um, a lot of people believe that domestic violence could never happen to them because they are smarter than that, you know, or they feel, you know, they would never, quote unquote, put themselves in a situation to be abused. Or a lot of people believe that if something like that happened to you, you provoked it or you invited it and it would never happen to them because they would never... Um, invite that that sort of situation into their lives. And so this is all a part of optimism bias that we believe that, you know, something like domestic violence or sexual violence or anything like that would never happen to us. The reality is that it could happen to anyone. In fact, we know that it does happen to anyone because it's not invited and it's not provoked. You know, we know those things. If we think about them, if we really... Um, Take a moment, just really take a second to think deeply about, you know, what we know about domestic violence, what we know about abuse, what we know about gender violence. We know that it's not an invitation. It simply is. It's something that happens. And um, I think it's harmful, actually, when we, uh, when we put optimism bias on other people because we make them think, the survivor think, that it's their fault. And in turn, that's what the abuser wants the survivor to think. Hmm. So it's just like this. It's just like this interesting circle. You hmm. know, society is like, yeah, that. I mean, I would never let that happen to me. That could never happen to me. The abuser is like, yeah, it wouldn't have happened to them if they didn't bring this on themselves. And so every finger 
is pointing at the victim, right? And that's exactly what they want because if you think it's your fault, if you think you brought it on yourself, if you think, you know, it's something that you provoked, then you're less likely to report it you're less likely to leave the situation. It's mm. all intentional. Right. You write at one point, victim blaming at its core is a tactic by the abuser it's to avoid tactic. responsibility. And, and, and others who are not even directly involved in the abuse are in a sense inadvertently perpetuating that tactic when they repeat yeah. this. Uh, I want to uh, ask you one, one other quick question from the chapter called Reinvention, yeah. in which uh, you touch on a really important matter which is that of, in a sense, what to name this, and in a particular, how to name yourself. And you write in this chapter that uh, for a long time, you did not want to let go of the term victim, that you, in a sense, took some comfort in thinking of yourself as a victim of domestic abuse rather than a survivor of domestic abuse because when you thought of yourself as a victim, that meant explicitly that a crime had been committed against you. And so that was, I I find that just fascinating that, uh, I mean, many of us, you know, might, our first inclination would be to, to say, don't think of yourself as a victim. And yet, Right. There was something powerful for you and important for you in thinking of yourself yeah. in that in that way. Uh, explain how or if you were able to ultimately kind of move past that, and if so, how? Yeah, I feel like over the last decade or so, I've watched the term victim um, become a negative. You know, people say, you know, don't play the victim or don't be the victim or be victimized like victim is being a victim is a scandal and in a way in the beginning I wanted to push back against that you know like I just felt that that was inconsiderate you know I thought that yes like a victim is a is a is a is a, is a term you know in the, in the justice system that indicates that there was a crime and I felt indicated in knowing that, you know, although I never reported him to the police and there was no, you know, criminal justice involved, that I could use that term, like I could take that and, and know for myself that that this had happened. I still identify as a victim. I think that that is still important. I also identify as survivor now, too. And the reason that I am ultimately embraced survivor. Initially, I didn't like the word because I felt like I hadn't survived. Nothing had survived. You know, my relationship didn't survive. My marriage didn't survive. I was homeless for a little bit of time. Um, I didn't have a job. So, like, nothing in my material life felt like it survived. And so I didn't like survivor. It just felt like, you know, um, it felt like a lie. It felt like a. It, it didn't feel true to what I was experiencing. But then I realized I survived. <laughs> you know, I, I am I am the thing that survived, right? And so I think that now I embrace both. So I'm one of those people who you can call mostly anything. You know, you can call me a victim, that's okay. You can call me a survivor, that's also okay. In turn, I give that back to other people. I won't call anyone something that they haven't explicitly told me they identify as. So if someone has not told me what they identify as, I'll call them their name. 
if I'm introducing them or if I'm speaking to them or if I'm, you know, um, introducing them to someone else. Um, if they say I identify as victim, I call them that. If they say I identify as survivor, I will call them that. I give people the respect of identifying their own selves because I think that's really important in reinvention is deciding who you're going to be moving forward and introducing that person to other people. And so I feel it's really important to give people that space. And one thing I think about in regards to surviving, in regards to reinvention, is that, you know, domestic violence is a trauma, you know, and there's damage. And so after the trauma and the damage, you really have to look around and ask yourself, what didn't break? You know, because in order to build something, you need materials, even recycled ones. You know, so for me, my curiosity didn't break. My hope didn't break. I didn't break. Um, and that's what surviving is about to me. It's about repairing those breaches. You know, reinvention is about leaving behind what was destroyed, uh, restoring what's vital, and uh, creating something new from what remains. And so um, what's new for me is identifying as a victim and survivor. What's new for me is you know, building a life and dating again and <laughs> buying a house and, you know, all these all these things that, that I can do now that I'm free from that relationship. And um, ultimately, I think reinvention, even in identifying yourself and calling yourself what you want, is um, deciding what you want now that you're free to want. Hmm. Well, the book is so remarkable. And, of course, it is a very important part of this uh, reinvention which you have imagined and this very exciting new chapter in your life, which includes really offering all kinds of help to to those who might find themselves in a similar situation. The book, again, is titled Surviving, Why We Stay and How We Leave Abusive Relationships, published by Roman and Littlefield, the author, Beverly Gooden. Beverly Gooden, thank you so much for writing this important book, and thank you for being my guest today on The Morning Show. Greg, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.